6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his teaching on the book of 2 Kings, chapters 24 and 25. Luke, he doesn't go through Solomon. Luke takes it through the second servant. Solomon was the first surviving son of Bathsheba. Nathan was the second servant, not the, Nathan the prophet, is the son of David. Nathan, the second surviving son of Bathsheba, down through a whole string that finally comes down to Heli, who is the father of Mary. Now you say, Chuck, how do we know that? Because it says Heli, it speaks of Joseph. Well, because you have to look at the Greek carefully. Uh, let's back up a little bit and tell, explain something else to you. Back in the Torah, there is a strange exception recorded in the Torah. There, in the Torah, there are rules of inheritance. Inheritance always took through, went through the male line, you may recall. It's always the firstborn son, etc., you know, the rules. But there, there's a guy by the name of Zelophehad who has five daughters, no sons. And he comes to Moses and says, what am I going to do? I've got only daughters. How will my inheritance work? Moses does the right thing. He doesn't judge it. He goes to the Lord and asks for guidance. And the Lord says, make an exception. So he does. It's recorded in Numbers 27. When you get 40 years later, you know, when they're in the, when Moses passed away, Joshua takes, they go into the land. By then, these four, five daughters of Zelophehad come to Joshua. They're getting ready. They've succeeded the seven year campaign. They've conquered the land. They're dividing up the land. And, and the, the daughters of Zelophehad say, uh, uh, hey, we got an exception. We're all daughters. And Joshua checks the Torah, the words of Moses. In Joshua 17, he says, you know, you're right. And they inherit by the exception that's in the Torah. What's really fascinating is if you look at, I've looked at dozens of commentaries, and what do they talk about the daughters of Zelophehad, this whole, this, this little incident that's in the Torah. And it's amazing to me that they don't get it. Most kind of people say, well, this is just a tribal exception as part of the ancient practice. You know, they have all these cultural comments, but they don't, know what, they don't understand what's going on here. It was C.I. Schofield, not in his Bible, but in some other writings he did. He was, to the best of my awareness, the first guy to recognize that the claims of Christ hang on this exception. Why? I'll explain. When the, 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 the rules, the exception was that if there's only daughters, that these, the husband would be adopted by the father of the bride as a son and thus inherit the inheritance of the, of, of the father of the bride. Do you follow me? The husband was adopted. And, and uh, many people know the rule, but they don't understand that there's actual adoption procedure. In Ezra 2, Nehemiah 7, this occurs in Numbers 32, also in First Chronicles 2, and, and so forth. So you'll find the scripture. Now the point is, this anticipates the lineage of Christ Joseph in Luke 3, verse 23, is not the son of Heli, he is the son-in-law of Heli. The word in the Greek is nobizo, which means reckoned as by law. So the, 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 uh, the Joseph 
in Matthew's genealogy is his bloodline, but uh, but uh, he doesn't carry the the because he's not the father of Christ in the blood sense, so he doesn't carry the curse, the blood curse of Jeconiah. The uh, in Luke's genealogy, jo- it says that Joseph is the son of Heli. It's actually the son-in-law of Heli. You've got Mary's genealogy in Luke, and it's amazing to me how many commentaries and, and dictionaries and stuff don't recognize that, or if they recognize, only do it partially. They say, well, maybe that's a possibility. They haven't done, they haven't finished their homework. So that's what's kind of interesting. So that's why we have virgin birth. It's first hinted at in the Garden of Eden. When God declares war on Satan, he says it's going to involve the seed of the woman. That's a contradiction in biology, let alone in grammar. The seed is the man, not the woman. The seed of the woman. It's a hint of the virgin birth. And of course, we we spoke about Ahaz. God offered him a sign. He wouldn't take a sign. In Isaiah 7, we talked about that uh, a few sessions ago. And God says, okay, if you won't take a sign, I'll give a sign to the house of uh, house of uh, Judah. A virgin shall conceive and so forth. Isaiah 7.14. Some people say, well, the Hebrew word there doesn't necessarily mean virgin. When the Hebrews translate into Greek, they use parthenogenesis, which is clearly a virgin. So in any case, there's no, there's no competent debate about that issue. All of this is an end run, if you will, on the blood curse on the royal line of Jeremiah 22.30. The, the blood curse that was pronounced in Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, or Kaniah, if you will. So I think that's kind of a fun thing, because it just when you when you go into this, these things, it's just fascinating to me to see the detailed tapestry that's been woven here. How God's plan takes cr- every crossing of the T, every dotting of the I, is is part of His plan, and He seems to go out of His way, you know, to do things colorfully, and. Uh, God has, I think he must, I, 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 I really do believe he has a sense of humor. This is a, this is great stuff. Another question that comes up, they are in the land for, the, the, the northern kingdom was wiped out permanently by the Assyrians, but the southern kingdom went, went into captivity for a definitive period of time, for 70 years. Why 70 years? Well, in 2 Chronicles 36, it explains why. In 2 Chronicles 36, starting verse 19, it says, And they burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces there with fire, destroyed all the goodly vessels. This is the parallel passage that we just read. And then that escaped from the sword, carried he away to Babylon. They were the servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. What this implies is that for 490 years they had not kept the Sabbath. So God says, you owe me 70. And so they're going into captivity to rest, if I can put that in quotes, the years that they owed God. He keeps score, doesn't he? There's there's a a very interesting uh, parallel um, uh, on the uh, this is the, there are 490 year periods all through history, Israel's history and in each reckoning there are longer periods calendar wise but you subtract the years they're out of fellowship and you always end up with 490 it's very interesting but anyway uh, this tells us why it's 70 years but it's interesting that when you get to Daniel Daniel's a captive in, in, in uh, Babylon he knows that they have been um, 
uh, in there for, he, he's reading the book of Jeremiah, actually. Daniel, in Daniel 9, is reading Jeremiah 25. I'll, get, I'll come to Daniel 9 in a minute. Daniel, in, in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, 12, he says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it a perpetual desolation. Now Daniel's reading the Bible. He's reading Daniel's word. When you open the Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says this, in the first year of Darius, the son of... Now this is... By the time you get to here, the Babylonians have been conquered by the Persians. But strangely enough, Daniel even rises to power in the Persian. That's a fascinating... The whole life of Daniel is fascinating. But in any case, he is under Darius, the son of Azarias, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. And in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel... Understood by the books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth. And then he goes into prayer for about twenty verses of prayer. Now, first point is kind of interesting. You notice Daniel is reading Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says it's going to be seventy years. I suspect that Daniel is by the time he's reading this, about sixty some odd years have gone by. He's an old man, not a young kid. He was transported as a kid, but he's now in, in, in his elder, later years. He's reading Jeremiah. Oh, it's only going to last 70 years. So he knows the captivity is about over. He doesn't put his feet on the desk and say, boy, I can hardly wait. You know, I'm a pre-trib rapture kind of guy. It's coming soon, you know. I'm being facetious. Um, what does he do about the fact that it looks like the captivity is about over? What is he? He prays. You betcha. And from verse 3... On to verse about 20, some odd, 20, 21. He is praying for God's will to be done. That may throw us a little bit. You know, we sort of give God our wish list. Hey, God, by the way, I'd like you to do this and that and this for me and be sure to watch over and whatever. No, that's not prayer. Well, you can petition. There's a place for that. But that's not prayer. Prayer is God's way of enlisting you in what he wants to do. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. Why do you have to pray for his kingdom? Of course it's coming. No, he wants you to pray for it. That's his way of involving you, getting you involved in what he's doing. Here's Daniel. He knows that captivity is about over. So what does he do? He prays for his people. He his prayer. And I'm sorry, I don't have the time to get into detail. His prayer is so intense that even in the English translation, you can feel him tremble. And by the time you get through in those verses, you'll f- feel the verbs pick up their speed. You can almost feel him get excited. And it's the interrupted prayer in the Old Testament. Because about verse 21, he's in the middle of his prayer, he's praying away, and who, guess who shows up? Gabriel. Whenever Gabriel shows up, he's always on a mission of announcing something about the Messiah. Old or New Testament, he's always announcing, he's, a, he's the, he's the advanced man, he's the PR man. Gabriel says, Daniel, because you're greatly beloved, I got a special verse, a prophecy for you. And the last four verses of Daniel 9, in my opinion, are the most important verses for you to master in the Old Testament. If you're serious about prophecy, you need to really master the last four verses of Daniel 9. Gabriel gives Daniel a four-verse prophecy that is unquestionably, to me, the most astonishing passage in the entire Scripture. Because it predicts the exact day that Jesus will present himself as a Messiah. The exact day. And you can prove it. 
you go through the trouble, I'm, I'm, I'm going to spare you that tonight. But I encourage you to do your homework. Uh, we've got obviously got a commentary on Daniel. We've got, uh, we've got special briefings called Daniel 70 Weeks. You, this, it's the famous 70-week prophecy of Daniel. The first of the four, four verses, Gabriel says to Daniel, 77, 70 Shabuim, 77s are reckoned or determined upon thy people, upon thy holy city. Notice it's on, it's on the Jews, not the church, the Jews. 77s are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. To do six things, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make a reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision of the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Wow. Now we won't go into the six things, but it's pretty clear those haven't happened yet. Have we made an end of sins? I don't think so. Or we can go right through the list. Have we got everlasting righteousness? Not yet. No, but when these 77s are over, all this will be accomplished. And you discover when you examine the subsequent next three verses, the 77s are divided into two groups, 69 and the last one. And between the two, there's a few verses about things that happen after the 69th, but before the 70th. Because of that insertion, verse 25 in there, you know that they're, they're not contiguous. You'd assume they're contiguous, and they are except for that parenthesis in there. Once you understand that, all the rest of the prophecies in the Old and New Testament will start to just... A roll out in front of you. So I encourage you to take the last four verses of Daniel 9 as a special assignment. But I want to show you something else. So I've got a few more minutes here. I can, we can go really out in the fringe. Now I'm going to out, I'm not going at this, I'm going to leave sound scholarship here and just show you a rather bizarre conjecture. I discovered this, uh, well, more than 30 years ago. I'll never forget the night that it seemed to leap out at me. I'll, I'll never forget as long as I live. So I just want to share it with you. In Ezekiel chapter 4, we won't go into detail, but there, Ezekiel, the first eight verses of chapter 4, is instructed by God to, in effect, act out or, or, or portray 430 years of judgment on the nation Israel. Seventy of those 430 years we can account for. That's the Babylonian captivity. The problem, and you'll find scholars puzzle over this, you take the 430 and, okay, take away the 70 because we understand those. There are 360 years that are apparently unaccounted for. They don't seem to fit anything. All kinds of conjecture. Nothing fits. Well, I came across one particular guy that had an interesting conjecture. He points out that in Leviticus 26, four times in that chapter, God says, If ye will not for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And he says that four times. If you don't do it, if you don't listen the first time, I'm going to punish you seven times. He says, I wonder about that, the problem 360. He says, you know, if you take 7 times 360, that's 2,520 years. That's about the time of the captivity to the restoration of Israel in the land. And he left it there. That was kind of interesting. Well, that's, a, that's kind of, I don't know, does that fit? I don't know. And I see the problem, he says, it's, it's about the right time. And I was always bothered when you say, I don't think the term approximate is in God's vocabulary. I mean, either fits or it doesn't. But I noticed that no one had applied what we learned from the... One of the things we learned from the 70-week prophecy of Daniel, Sir Robert Anderson's discovery, was that God deals in 360-day years for lots of reasons I won't try to build here. But uh, so, you take, uh, so if you take the 360 years times 7, you got 2,520 years, but no one had bothered to realize those 2,520 years are with 360-day years. All the calendars before 701 B.C., 14 different cultures, all had 360-day year. The Hebrews... Uh, uh, the Chaldeans, uh, you can find uh, uh, over a dozen cultures all have 360-day calendars. 
up until 71 BC. Then they all change. Romans add four and a quarter days in effect. The, the Jews do a weird thing. They add a whole month every once in a while. Seven times in a 19 year cycle, in a 19 year period. It's a strange. In fact, the rabbis argue, why did Hezekiah do that weird? No one bothers to say, why did they all have to change the calendars? And there's some conjectures about that having to do with the orbital mechanics, but I won't get into that here. The point is, we do know that God seems to use 360 day years. He does it in Genesis and he does it in Revelation. If you do, if you do the arithmetic. So, question is, okay, let's try to count the gun. So, if we have 2,520 years of 360 days, what is that on our calendar? And, uh, it turns out, of course, the Julian year is 11 minutes and 10.46 seconds uh, greater than the mean solar year, and that's why you have these calendar problems. One of the reasons you have these calendar problems. So what they discovered this, the, you know, that the Julian calendar was wrong, and they corrected it, realized they had 11 days too many. So they did what they called the Gregorian reform. They removed 11 days out of September to get the calendars back in sync, and that's when they also adapted, adopted the leap year rule. That, uh, you know, every, you have a, a leap, uh, you add a day every fourth year, but not on the centuries. Okay? Not on the century marks. Even though they may do it by, by four. So, it turns out anyway, if you're trying to convert 2,520, 360 day years to 365 days, you're going to end up with 2,483 years, nine months, and 21 days. I know that excites you terribly. But, uh, <laughs> And the way you get there, but so you know how you get there, you see, see, if you, if you're trying to correct for the leap years, you got, you have three extra excess days every four centuries. So you got 18 excess, but you already allowed for 11 because of the Gregorian reform. So there's 614 days there. If you take the 2483 times 365, that's 905, 295 days. You add nine months, that's 270 days there. And you add 21 days is another 20 days. So anyway, if you go through this arithmetic, the net of it is, is that 2520 Years of 360 days is 907,200 days, but in our calendar that would be 2,483 years, nine months, and 21 days. You say, "Gee, Chuck, that's not only boring. What do I do with that?" <laughs> well, let's take a look at the the calendar, the timeline. Uh, we're dealing with the Babylonian period, and we said there was a first siege that was Second Kings 24, verse two. There was a second siege in Second Kings 24:11, and there's a third siege, the final one in Second Kings 25:2. Those three sieges of Nebuchadnezzar, let's not get them confused. Most scholars do, and I'll explain why. You see, the Babylon captivity ends with the decree of Cyrus. The Persians conquer Babylon, and they free Israel. Okay, so there is a period of time prophesied in the prophets called the servitude of the nation. The nation begins its servitude with the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar, and it ends when the Babylonians are conquered and Cyrus frees them. That turns out to be 70 years long. You with me so far? Straightforward. Okay. Where people get confused, the Bible also talks about the desolations of Jerusalem. They are also predicted to be 70 years long. And most scholars jump to the conclusion that both they're synonyms for the same thing. No, they're not. Because during the, between the first and second siege, the prophets are saying, if you don't obey Nebuchadnezzar, God's going to destroy Jerusalem. They rebel anyway. They're put down a second time. New king put in place. Between the second and third siege, same thing. Zedekiah does the same thing. He finally rebels. And by the time you get to the third siege, Nebuchadnezzar has had a belly full of the whole thing down there. So he takes them all captives, levels the place. Okay? 
That starts the period of time called the desolations of Jerusalem. That was the threat that they didn't adhere to. So in the third siege, Jerusalem is destroyed. It is also for 70 years, but it's not coterminous. We are indebted to Sir Robert Anderson for being sharp enough to recognize there's two periods of time involved. It's the servitude of the nation, which starts with the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar, and the desolations of Jerusalem, which starts with the third siege. Are you with me so far? Okay. So now the question is, what ends the desolations of Jerusalem is the decree of Artaxerxes. See, when Cyrus freed them to go home, go home and build your temple. Didn't give authority to build their city. Nineteen years goes by. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. And he's frustrated because he knows that they're not getting anywhere there. So he goes to his boss and gets the authority to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the walls. He's granted. He heads back there. And uh, that's the, Ezra is the story of the frustrations. Nehemiah is the climax when they finally build their temple and so forth. The point is, the Jerusalem desolations end with the decree of Artaxerxes Longimanus, March 14th to 445 B.C. And that happens to be important to us for other reasons because it triggers the 70th week of Daniel, which I won't get into here. But here's something I want to show you. It's kind of interesting. You say, Chuck, okay, what do I do with these 2,520 years? What do I do with those things? You went through all that arithmetic, what for? I don't know. But I want to show you something that's kind of interesting. If you count the 2,520 years in effect from the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar, the servitude of the nation, you come to May 14th of 1948 when Israel was reestablished the land. When David Ben-Gurion over International Radio, using Ezekiel's authority, declared the new Jewish homeland Israel. Wow, that's kind of interesting. Then again, it could be coincidence. Uh, you know, the rabbis say coincidence is not a kosher word. Uh, what happens if I take the 2,520 years from the third siege, the desolations of Jerusalem trigger? What happens then? The city of Jerusalem. I come to June 7th of 1967 when Jerusalem was restored to the, under the Star of David for the first time since the Romans and set them on the diaspora. You say, gee, that's pretty wild. Yeah, it is. Serve to the nation. See, the 70 years, also 360-day years, so if you, there's actually 2,500 and 200 days. This is 69 years, uh, just it's two di- less two days is the time. From 606 B.C. to 69 years is 537. If July 23rd, 537 B.C. was their release, then that comes out to May 14th of 1948, when the nation of Israel was restored. On the other hand, if I take that from the uh, uh, third siege, 587 B.C., plus the 69 years, 518, if August 16th, 518 was the completion of the walls of Jerusalem, that would make it, it comes out to um, June 7th of 1967, when the biblical city of Jerusalem was restored to the nation. Kind of interesting. Now, I'm cheating because we don't know those dates that precisely. In other words, uh, uh, there's, there, there, we don't have the documentation agreed to by scholars. There, there, it's, it's not that precise. Those are backed into, but it's still, I think, it fits, and it's very, very, I think, very interesting. So there's some more research to be done. I thought I'd share that with you, and that ends our review of the second book of Kings. What happens now, of course, they're in captivity. The, this is where, if you're, if you're studying on your own, I encourage you to read the prophecies of Jeremiah especially, and certainly uh, Ezekiel of that time period. Book of Daniel, of course. Those are the major prophets, as they're called. Major because they're large, not because they're more important than others. Um, what we're going to do in, continu- in our continuing saga here is we're going to pick up the last two books 
of the historical series, if you will, namely Ezra and Nehemiah in the next uh, series of eight meetings. So uh, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. For next time, if you're going to join us uh, in the next session, I encourage you to read the book of Ezra. And uh, we'll be going through it. Uh, uh, we'll go through both books in about eight sessions. We won't make a long thing out of it. And yet there's some tr- tremendous lessons there for our personal lives. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for the record you've given us of just the extremes that you go to on behalf of your people. And we realize, Father, you go to even more extremes for us. And as we look at the dismal history, we pray, Father, that through your Spirit, through your grace, and through your mercy, that you would, through your Word and through your Holy Spirit, touch our lives. Let us be Josiahs. Let us be totally turned to you in our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Oh, Father, we realize that is the great commandment in in the Shema, the Torah, and in the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, we know that when we pray for that, we're praying in accordance with your will. For we do, Father, pray, Father, that you would help us to love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind on all that we are. We do pray, Father. We pray that you would help us understand these lessons from that ancient culture so long ago when people were under the law and under your under the covenant of the law. While we recognize there are differences, Father, we still, with the same zeal, seek to understand what you would have of us. Help us to appreciate, Father, that you mean what you say and you say what you mean. Help us to really know you, Father, as we seek to grow in grace the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, as we seek to be more fruitful stewards of all that you've given us. We ask these things, Father, as we, right now, before your throne, commit ourselves with no reservations into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Musler, teaching through the book of 2 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, when we begin a new series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.